Today's reading will be out of Isaiah chapter 44. If you would stand with me in the honor of reading God's holy word. Verses 1 through 5 say, But hear now, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land, and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass, like willows by flowing streams. This, sorry, this one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call out the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Wayne, and thank you, Todd. Thank you, Dee for Kids Talk as well. Turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. Let's read this together. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, For as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these things, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today with this passage. I pray, Lord, that you would help us have minds to hear, ears to listen. Lord, may we see what it is that you have taught us in this passage. May we glean from this some truths that we can take with us. Lord, may we worship you more because of this, because of what you reveal about yourself here. Lord, I pray for us as we move into this. Lord, take me out of the way. Lord, let this not be about me or any kind of eloquence that I may have or not have, but Lord, let your Holy Spirit come down in this place, and may you pour forth uh, and, and, and speak your truth from this passage, from your word, in your name, 
Amen. A few weeks ago, we had the opportunity to begin and kind of introduce this chapter. And last week, Todd did an excellent job of walking through verses 1 through 36, helping us lead up to this climactic moment in John chapter 7. If you missed the sermon uh, the last couple of weeks, I highly encourage you to go back on our website. You can, you can look up and listen to both of these messages and kind of get, get, some, get some groundwork for this, especially from two weeks ago. We had a really by that I mean it was it was there was a lot of meat there. If you would use the analogy scripture uses of milk and meat, uh, two weeks ago was a giant steak that was probably very overcooked and very hard to eat. So I highly encourage you to go back and listen to two weeks ago. Um, one of the things I've done, I've also put my notes on there as well, so it, it can help you if you as as you're wading through those deep waters to be able to kind of see, uh, see how it all comes together. I, I do encourage you to go back and see that. Um, so a couple weeks ago, we looked at how, it look at, we kind of looked at Leviticus 24 and how the different, the seven feasts that are prescribed by the Lord, how those are actually God revealing his plan of redemption. Um, we saw how, how the different feasts end up matching up timeline-wise exactly with, with uh, different things having to do with Christ and his crucifixion. And this, this feast that, that we're at right here in John chapter 7 is called the Feast of Booths, not booze, not like alcohol, and definitely not like ghosts um, or like booze. Booths. I'm going to be very, try to be very, very purposeful about that. Um, or tabernacles or Sukkot, you might hear it called as well. Um, here in John chapter 7, Israel is celebrating this, this feast. This is the seventh feast. And uh, here today, we're actually at, at the, the grandest day, the biggest day of this biggest feast. Right. If you were to if you were to look back in Leviticus chapter twenty four and look at the way uh, later in in in, in uh, I think it's in Numbers where the where the feast is actually described what they're supposed to do it's lots of sacrifices it's a massive celebration it's a massive event and here we have uh, uh, this is going on the celebration is actually taking place right now where Jesus is and and what we're at today uh, uh, in verse thirty seven it's the last day of the feast the great day so this is the seventh day. Of the, fe- of the seventh feast. So this is uh, in, in, the, in the calendar, this would have been the seventh month of their year, the 21st day of their month, uh, of, their, of their seventh month, which the, the Feast of Booths was from the 14th day to the 21st day. Uh, the, the eighth day of the feast, the, la- the, the day that would come after this was when they would take everything down and, and go- everybody would go home. So this is right here is the seventh day, the last day of the feast. Now, because of other prophecies in the Bible, such as Haggai 2, where God promises that the glory of the second temple will be greater than the glory of the first temple, and Zechariah 14, where God promises that when living, that when living waters flow from Jerusalem, God will be recognized as king over the earth, many of the people of Israel expected that the Messiah would show up at this feast. Because of the, 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 the prominence that this particular feast has throughout Scripture and, and, and surrounded by prophecy, they expected that this would be the day that the Messiah would show up. So they're already looking for this. And it's really interesting. What we'll see today, we'll see how people respond to Jesus showing up on this day, which is kind of fascinating. It's really, really interesting uh, given what they, what they believed. Um. So in, in Zechariah 14, uh, uh, is, is, you know, the, the God will be recognized as king over all the earth. 
And these people then believe that the, that the Savior would arrive in the feast. So all of John 7 takes place during this feast. Last week, we saw how Jesus' teaching in the middle of the feast, in one of the middle days of the feast, brought a great deal of discussion and division among the different groups in attendance. And Todd did a great job of explaining that. Um, today, we're going to see the climax of Jesus' revelation of himself as the true Feast of Booths. But I don't mean that he is a feast, right? He is a holiday. What we mean by that is he is the, the ultimate fulfillment of that feast, that the feast is pointing to Jesus. So Jesus is saying, hey, guys, the feast, this ceremony that you guys have been, all be, have been dealing with, that's all about me. And I'm the real Feast of Booths here. So Jesus reveals himself as the true Feast of Booths, and we'll also witness the different responses. In application, what we'll notice here is there's several different ways that people respond to the truth about Jesus' identity. First, we'll see that some respond by believing in G that Jesus is who he says he is. Second, we'll see that there's some who are confused about who Jesus is. And third, we will see that there are some that are hostile when confronted with the truth of who Jesus is. So going back to verse 37, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. So this here, we're on the seventh day of the feast. On the seventh day of the feast, the priest would go to the pool of Siloam and he would pour water on the altar. So the altar, when they were doing the sacrifices, he would, they would pour water. They had this big ceremony where they would pour buckets of water onto the, onto the, uh, onto the, uh, onto the altar. This was done for two reasons. First, the, pr the practice was an anticipation of the rainy season. The, the, the Feast of Booths takes place right before the rainy season. So they're, they're praying for rain. In fact, there were some that were, that were probably more superstitious about this, uh, that, that had come to believe that unless they did this ceremony, God would not bring rain. So there are some, some people that had some superstition that added along with this. Um, however, the, the, the practice itself was, was an anticipation for God to bring rain. And further, um, there's, as we read in, in Isaiah chapter 44, uh, the pouring of water that would take place on the Feast of Booths was also representative and, and in anticipation of the Holy Spirit's coming. In Isaiah chapter 44, it likens water. It says that God will pour forth water. He will pour forth his Holy Spirit. He will pour forth his spirit. So there is in, in, in Hebrew, in Jewish uh, mindset, the idea that the concept of God's spirit and, and uh, is the Holy Spirit was tied to the concept of water. Now, again, they wouldn't understand the Holy Spirit in the same way that scripture reveals him as the, the third member of the Godhead. They would have had him more of his, would have believed in him more of as a force or some aspect like that. But either way, their anticipation was that God would pour out his spirit, not just pouring out water and, and blessing the land, but also pouring out his spirit and blessing the people. So there was this anticipation that so this, this water ceremony is going on on this seventh day. And this is, this is what's going on when Jesus speaks up here. Um, and they're, they're anticipating water and they're anticipating uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit. It was on this day when these rituals were taking place. These rituals would have been fresh on everyone's minds. It may have been during the rituals. It may have been just after. Whatever the case, look at what Jesus does. Jesus stands up in the middle of this and cries out. Not just, hey guys, I got something I want to say to you. Right? He speaks up. He says, guys, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. This water ceremony, essentially, is nothing compared to what I offer. This is nothing. 
Jesus said something similar to the Samaritan woman at the, at the well in John chapter 4. He said that he is the living water. But this particular timing brought with his statement a very special significance. In reality, Jesus is claiming that the ritual performed could not provide what the, what the feast sought for. That ritual can't provide what the feast was looking for. Instead, Jesus claimed that he is the true feast of tabernacles, the one that the feast pointed to. He doesn't say, like, hey, guys, I'm the true feast of tabernacles. It's what he says. And when he's saying it, the people will be like, wait a minute. What is he talking about? What does he mean by that? And Jesus is making a very direct and pointed statement here. Now, remember back to Leviticus 24. God gives a command about the feast so that they might remember when they dwelt in booths. If you look back to in Leviticus 24, when the command is given, God says, you're going to dwell in booths for seven days to remember the time when you dwelt in booths. Now, if you look back, if you were to read from the time the people of Israel left Egypt up until that point in Leviticus, there is nothing in scripture that says that they dwelled in booths. Nothing. So what does that mean? What is he talking about? If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we look back how in Exodus chapter 12, the first place that the people of Israel stayed in after they, uh, after they escaped from Egypt was a place called Booths. The name of the place was Sukkot, which is the word for booths or tabernacles. So God is saying, remember when you dwelled in that place. Remember that first place you stopped at after you were free, after you had been freed from the slavery of Egypt. The feast was a reminder about God's redemption of his people from the bondage of Egypt. And later in scripture, this, this feast uh, is, is revealed to show that this is also about God's plan to redeem a people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. So the feast was not just about, hey guys, remember when we lived in some tents? It was, guys, remember that God saved us. And remember that God wants to save people throughout the world. God wants to make a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Then the feast required the people to dwell in, in small tents called booths. While in the wilderness, God also required the people to build a big booth or a tabernacle. If you remember that from, 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 uh, from, from the early days of, of the people of Israel, they, they built a tabernacle. And this is where God dwelled with his people. Right, this is where God chose to dwell among his people. Many years later, Solomon, and then even more years later after that, Nehemiah would build temples as a place for God to dwell with man. In John 1.14, the scripture tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt. The word literally, the verb there literally means that we're, the God be, where the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He made his home. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us, made his booth among us. So there is, we have this expanding idea of tabernacling that takes place in scripture. There's a place called booths. There's the tabernacle itself. Then there's the temple. Then there's the person of Jesus Christ. And even later, we'll see, uh, we saw a couple weeks ago in Revelation that God, in the end times, after, after he comes back and he rules and reigns forever in the new heaven and new earth, God tabernacles among his people once more forever and for eternity. Amen. 
So the ultimate fulfillment of this particular feast is still yet to come. We still get to see the ultimate fulfillment of the Feast of Booze when God dwells with his people forever. But here we have Jesus who is dwelling with his people. The word of God, the son of God become flesh, dwelling with his people. And he stands before these people in the temple and says, I'm the feast. I'm the booth. I'm the one tabernacling among you. Amen. Jesus is God tabernacled with mankind. Here in John 7 is telling us that the people that he is, uh, that he is the, the true feast of tabernacles, not only is this significant, but also remember back to Haggai 2. And Haggai 2, uh, God promised that the glory of the second temple will be greater than the glory of the first. Now, I do have to confess, uh, Sue did confront me and wanted to, wanted to help me. Uh, it, it, uh, it actually caused me to go back and look. So this is, uh, I wanted to wait, make sure this is clarified. There was... Um, The first temple was built by Solomon. There was the second temple that was built by Nehemiah. Now, over time, that second temple came into disrepair uh, of sorts. And Herod came along and did some rebuilding with it. He didn't, the temple wasn't destroyed. That second temple wasn't completely destroyed until AD 90. So this is after Jesus' death. Um, but the, the, the temple was, was restored, rebuilt, and Herod was adding on to it. In fact, while this is going on here in John chapter 7, very likely the temple was still had some construction going on around it. Um, but Herod had, been, had started this massive building project to, build, to help the people to, be, uh, to, to love him more as their king. And um, Herod, because he was also kind of an arrogant guy, he started having it be called Herod's Temple. And because it was his building project, it sometimes became called Herod's Temple. This was still the same structure that was built by Nehemiah at the end of, at the end of, uh, of after, uh, after the exile in the, in the second temple. Um, however, it was, there was differences. There was some, some new structure there, if you, if you will. Does that help Sue a little bit? Okay. All right. We'll talk about that later. Anyway, so um, this is the this is the second temple here that was built. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. So I just want to make sure we we had some clarification there. Uh, in Haggai two, God had made the promise. So this is after the second temple was built. The people were worried. They they saw the second temple and they said, "This is not the same temple that Solomon built." They were lamenting. They were sad that the, that the temple wasn't as great as it, as it used to be. In fact, in Haggai 2, it says on the 21st day of the seventh month is when they were having, the, where they were mourning over this, which was the last day of the Feast of Booths, right? If we go back to Leviticus 24, this is what's going on in Haggai chapter 2. The last day of the Feast of Booths is when God is speaking to the people in Haggai chapter 2, and they're lamenting that the second temple is not as great as the first, and and God says that, that this temple will be greater, will be filled with his glory. This, the glory of the second temple will be greater than the glory of the first. So right here then in John chapter 7, you have Jesus on the seventh day, uh, or the 21st day of the seventh month, the last day of the Feast of Booths, the same day that God promised in Haggai chapter 2, Jesus standing in the temple, the tabernacle, the God with us, the, the God who has tabernacled with humanity, standing in the temple, making this proclamation. What greater glory could a temple have besides God dwelling with man in, in flesh, Jesus Christ standing in the temple. So here we also have, in, in, right here in this passage, we have a fulfillment of Haggai chapter 2. 
So let's, let's, let's go back. If we've got that background. We've got that back fresh in our mind. Let's go back to the text. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, when Jesus says, as the scripture says here, there's not a specific passage that Jesus is quoting. In fact, there's no passage that exactly quotes just like that. What very likely what Jesus is doing is he is giving a summary of many scriptures or a summary of scripture in general, that this is what the scriptures say is that out of his heart, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water or literally actually it says out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. The idea of the belly was the center of your being in their culture. That would have been what, instead of what we would say in our hearts or something like that in, in that culture would have been in your belly. You feel that in your belly. It's, it's, it's the, the center of your being. So, that's what it literally says, but it, the, the concept is it's out of the center of who you are, which is why your translations may say out of his heart, or it may just say from him or out of him. Um, so this then, then said, so what, what is Jesus getting at here? It says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow, flow rivers of living water. Well, we, we don't really have to guess, right? We don't have to guess what Jesus means by this because John tells us. Look at the next verse, verse 39. John says this. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus clarifies here, this is about the Holy Spirit, or John clarifies for us that Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. When he says that those who believe in Jesus, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What are those rivers of living water? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the same guy, the same third person of the Trinity that in Isaiah chapter 44 is promised to flow out to the people and bring blessing on the people. Whoever believes in Christ, whoever is a believer, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, will flow the Holy Spirit. Now it says that this is not yet fulfilled. This actually, so there's clearly in scripture, this is not talking about that the Holy Spirit hasn't existed yet, or the Holy Spirit has never worked yet until now. Uh, there are multiple places throughout scripture where the Holy Spirit is continuing to work all the way throughout scripture, yet there is not an outpouring of the Holy Spirit nearly what takes place in Acts chapter 2. After the death and resurrection of Jesus and Jesus ascends back into heaven, on Pentecost, this is when the Holy Spirit comes and starts to indwell believers and the Holy Spirit lays on believers and believers begin to be this rivers of, uh, they begin to pour forth with these rivers of living water. So this is ultimately fulfilled. What John points us to is he points us to Pentecost. It says this is going to be fulfilled. What Jesus says right here will be fulfilled at Pentecost, that out of, this, out of these believers will flow rivers of living water. So as we, as we meditate on this first couple of verses here, the call in this first section is twofold. First, if you're not a believer, this section reveals to you the truth of who Jesus is. Will you accept him as your Lord and Savior? Second, this passage gives insight into this, our, our first group of responders. This is the, the people who believe in Jesus. 
Those who would believe in him. This is the, it, it doesn't specifically say these are people who, there are people who believe in him here. But they are described. Whoever believes in me, as, as, so the people who believe in him are described. Those people who, the first group of responders who believe or who, who hear the truth of who Jesus is, they respond by belief. For those believers, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The living water is the Holy Spirit. The message proclaimed by the Holy Spirit is about the Son of God. It is the gospel. If you are a Christian, our primary task is to share the gospel with the world. How have you shared the good news of Jesus Christ with others this week? Have you done what you're called to do? Sharing the gospel is not some option on the buffet table of Christianity. It's like, oh, well, I'll take a little bit of this. I'm going to pass up that, that sharing the gospel stuff because I really don't like the aftertaste. You know, this is not an op- it's not a buffet option. This is a requirement for every single Christian. Every one of us is called to take the gospel to the nations. Church, every year we send a team to the nation of Honduras, but how well do we reach the people that God has placed on our doorstep? Does Gordon know that we are a church concerned for their souls? Second group of people we'll see here today. Some people are confused Look at this next passage here. It says, when they heard these things, this is the people who are listening, the crowds that are around. When they heard these things, some of the people, the, the actual term here, the, the, the literal word here is the word crowds. If, if you remember uh, last week, Todd uh, did a great job explaining the different groups of people. The crowds were the people from outside the city that had gathered to come to the city to, to worship for this festival. The crowds, they, they, they're a very torn group. If you look at this, it says some, uh, some of the people, some of the crowds said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. So in, in step back for a second here in, in first century Judaism, there is a concern or there's the understanding that the prophet, the prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy 18 was different than the promised Messiah. These were two different people. So some people are saying, oh, he's the prophet. Some people are saying, oh, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. And, and there's, this, there's this difference of opinion here. But, but actually, in history, Christians were the first ones to really recognize that both are the same guy. The prophet like Moses is the Messiah. Because we saw it in Christ. When Christ fulfilled the prophecies, we saw, oh, these two are both the same guy. Because Jesus fulfills both roles. So here we have the, you have people, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Now pause for a second. What do you think John is doing as he's writing this? I gotta imagine John is cracking himself up while he's writing this. Right? Anyone who has heard or has read any of the other Gospels, they know the answer to these guys' questions. Isn't the Messiah supposed to be from David? Isn't he supposed to be born in Bethlehem? Yep, he is. And guess where Jesus was born? Bethlehem. Guess what lineage Jesus is from? David! Right? 
There's a, there's a strong sense of irony here as John writes this. He's, these pe- the people are just, he, he paints the, pe- I love this, he paints the people as they have no idea what they're talking about. They just don't get it. It's in one ear and out the other, and they have blinders on. It's sitting right in front of them, and they're blinded to the truths that stand right in front of them. It's amazing. So the people here, they're confused about who Jesus is. Is he the prophet? Is he the Christ? Well, I don't know, because the Christ really is, is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. But this guy's from Galilee. We don't even know what we're supposed to do about this guy. We have no clue. And then it says, some of the people wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Think about that. Oh, we really need to arrest this guy. I don't know. I don't. Well, you do it? Oh, you do it. No, you do it. No, you do it. No, you do it. No. Like, it's, just, it's such a funny scene. This one paragraph right here is hilarious to read. There's so much confusion, so much disarray that these people want to do something about it, but they have no idea what they're supposed to do. But Jesus has just told them, come to me, all you who thirst. And they're like, oh, what do I do? I don't know. Maybe go to him, right? That might be the obvious answer. But instead, they stand in confusion. Now, none of us are confused about Jesus ever, right? Nobody in our culture in the United States are confused about who Jesus is, are they? This is still the case. We are revealed from Scripture who Jesus is. People can read the same Bible we're reading and have no idea who Jesus is. They go, oh, well, Jesus is just a really nice guy. He's really nice. And he wants us to be really nice to each other. And that's it. And you go, did you read the same Bible I read? I'm pretty sure we're supposed to worship him as Lord and Savior. Right? We can come to the same Bible, and there's some people who would say, Jesus, his, his whole goal is for you to become wealthy, for you to be the best person you can be, for you to have your best life now. For you, whatever the case may be, you need to be healthy, you need to be wealthy, you need to have everything you've ever wanted. And if you have enough faith, Jesus can give that to you, and that's who Jesus is. Is that what Scripture says? No, but they're reading the same Bible I'm reading. Faced with the reality of who Jesus is, they make him into who they want him to be or what their already their preconceived notions of him are. You make there's if you if you ever watch I do this sometimes because people go to like uh, Christian groups will go on and do interview things. Um, they'll talk to people on the streets and they're like, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? They come up with some of the most bizarre things in the, in their lives, right? In their in the entire world like well, you know, I just think Jesus is like this really cool guy, just like waiting to hand, I don't know, hand out bubble gum. I don't know what they're doing, but you know, it's just, it's like, it's weird. Like, like did you read the Bible? Because that's not what scripture says about him, right? Faced with the reality of who Jesus is, people become confused. That's not, that's, that's not any different today. In fact, for me, every single time I hear somebody say the word Jesus on television or wherever it is, my first question for that person is, what do you mean by Jesus? I watched the presidential inauguration. I'm going to be a little bit bold here. Uh, one of the people who prayed uh, during the uh, opening sections is a, is a lady named Paula White. Uh, Paula White is a false teacher. She is a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel teacher. And... Uh, she prayed in Jesus' name. I'm like, what Jesus are you talking about? It's not the same Jesus I'm talking about. Right? But yet, I'm sure there's many people across the nation that watched that and said, oh, she said Jesus. Isn't she just awesome? Isn't that great? Jesus was mentioned. 
in, in, in the inauguration. Isn't that great? But what she meant is not the same thing that Scripture teaches. We have a world that is confused about who Jesus is. You can go to the Christian bookstore and you can pick up a book that says something in it. Oh, this is a Christian book, so it must be good. You read it, it, is, it could be the furthest thing from Christianity. There is a, uh, a famous uh, church historian who he came to the conclusion that the center of Jesus' message was to love God, who is God his Father, to love other people, and to follow the moral code that Jesus had offered in the Gospels. The red letters. Read the red letters, and there you go. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not love God, love others, and do nice things for people. The gospel is that God, the Son of God, took on humanity to die for your sin and for my sin. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and death. And he, he uh, ascended on high and is seated at the right hand of the Father, even today. And his call to us is that we may repent of our sins. We need to realize I am a sinner. I can't save myself. I can do, there's no amount of good things that I can do to get me to heaven, to get me to God. And unless I come to that conclusion, put my full faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for my salvation, I have no hope. None. Amen. Amen. That's the gospel. But that is not what many people say about who Jesus is. We are confused about who Jesus is. I urge you to be cautious when you hear things on television, when you hear things out in the world, when you preach, when you share the gospel with others, know that some people are going to be very confused. If you preach, hey guys, you know, you need to believe in Jesus. Okay, I'll believe in Jesus. You want to make sure they know what you mean by that. We want to take some more time and make sure you're, you're helping and, and making sure that's clear. There's lots of confusion about who Jesus is. Finally, we're going to see that there, is, there, is, um, there are people who, are, uh, who can, who can uh, respond. One. I dropped my notes and I was trying to finish without them. Some people respond aggressively to Jesus. I apologize. I couldn't think of the word. Uh, some people respond aggressively to Jesus. Now look at this. The officers, this is the, this is the, the temple Security guards, if you will, the temple police. Um, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why didn't you bring him? You were supposed to arrest him. We came to this conclusion earlier in the chapter. We needed to arrest him. Why didn't you arrest him? What happened? What do these guys say? The officers said, no one ever spoke like this man. Now, again, if you've been reading the gospel of John up to this point, you'd be thinking, yep. You got it. You figured something out. No one's ever spoke like him before. Exactly. Because he is God. Because he has that authority to speak like that, unlike anyone else can speak. And the Pharisees then answered them. This is great. Look at how the Pharisees answer. Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law and is accursed. Right? Saying, those bunch of idiots over there that can't really figure out this stuff about Jesus, they're idiots because they don't realize that that guy can't be the Messiah. He can't be anybody and he needs to be arrested and killed. They can't figure that out. Are you really as stupid as they are? How arrogant, first of all, right? What an 
arrogant statement to make. These people, they were like, I'm supposed to arrest this guy, but this guy speaks with authority. I've never heard anybody speak like him before. And they get like, what do I do? Right? And the Pharisees are like, you were supposed to do, do your job, despite whatever, do that. Why didn't you do it? Right? These guys, maybe they were starting to believe. We don't know. We don't know how these officers responded. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say we know that the officers were Christians. We don't know that. We have no idea how these officers ultimately responded to Jesus. What we do know is that they're, they're not the aggressively against group. Right? And these people are like, are you, are you idiots? Are you stupid like the rest of these people? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? Verse 48. Look at verse 49. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Verse 50. Nicodemus. Now remember Nicodemus back in chapter 3. Right? This is where John 3.16 comes from. Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who had gone to him, that is Jesus, who had gone to Jesus before, and who was one of them, one of the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Nicodemus steps in. Now again, we still, we, the scriptures are not clear on whether or not Nicodemus becomes a Christian. We don't know 100% where Nicodemus is at at this point. It's possible that he may be, he may be a believer, which, which would be bringing a sort of a little bit of irony to what the Pharisees said earlier. None of us believe in him. And Nicodemus is like, hey, uh... <laughs> You know, if he is a believer, that would be interesting. However, we don't, we don't know for sure. However, Nicodemus does step in and kind of defends Jesus a little bit. He's like, hey, we haven't even put this guy on trial. Can we, can we really arrest somebody without having like, put them to trial and that kind of stuff? Like, don't we need to go about this the right way is kind of what he's going about, was kind of what he's saying here. He defends Jesus a little bit. Um, he says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? <laughs> I love it. Are you from Galilee too? Part of this, this is, is very, much, very much probably saying, you follow that Jesus guy too? Are you one of those guys? And also, though, with a little bit of racism, right? You from that part of the country? Because, yeah, those guys are idiots. You know, they're below us. You really want to claim to be part of that group? Right? They're a bunch of nobodies. Right? Are you, really, are you, are you from, uh, from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Right? Here they come. Guys, look at the scriptures. Nicodemus, go back to your Bible. You'll find nothing there about prophets coming from Galilee. Right? One, it's kind of strange to ask somebody to search for nothing. That's a weird thing to ask. Search and you won't find anything. Thank you. Like, it's a really weird thing to ask. Um, but uh, in addition to this, there, there's some debate. There's this, uh, to give you, uh, there's, a, there's a debate whether or not there's supposed to be a the here. Some early manuscripts have, have, a, have the, the Pharisees saying the prophet does not come from Galilee. Some manuscripts have it where it's, there's no the, it's just a prophet, that no prophet in general comes from Galilee. Now, that's an interesting Thought, and we, don't, we really don't know one way or the other. In fact, that's, this translator chose to use just uh, no prophet, just kind of in general. Now, either way, it's kind of interesting because if, if they did mean the prophet does not come from Galilee, as in the Deuteronomy 18, the prophet like Moses, they're saying that he doesn't come from Galilee. Nowhere in the scripture does it say where the prophet like Moses comes from. So saying you, you're not going to find these from Galilee, or you're not going to find from anywhere. 
Like, there's nowhere in Scripture that says where the prophet comes from, especially if you separate the prophet from the Messiah. If you separate those two ideas, you're just, you're, you've got nothing. You're, you're making an argument from silence. If, if, on the other hand, they're saying that no prophet in general comes from Galilee, they're just wrong. Jonah's not from Judea. Jonah was a prophet, right? And there's a couple other prophets as well. They're not, not every prophet was from Judea. There were some prophets from Galilee, right? So at the very least, they're, they're asking a dumb, they're, they're saying, hey, look for something that, that you're never going to find anything about anyway. Or at the very worst, they're saying, hey, guys, you know, we know all the Bible and nobody's from Galilee. Uh, wrong. There are prophets from Galilee, so you're stupid, right? <laughs> so there's either way that it comes, that it comes across, it, it comes across the Pharisees, not on the, on the good end of this, this particular uh, spectrum here. Now, this is our third group. The third group respond in, uh, with accusations and with attacks. Do we have any of that? Today. I would say, I would, I would venture to guess, just for sake of time, uh, I would venture to guess that probably the most popular thing we might run into, if you say you believe in Jesus, you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, people are going to say, oh, that's not scientific. Like, that's, that's the Trump card right there. It's not scientific. I don't mean Donald Trump, right? Trump card as in the game, right? The card that defeats all colored cards. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not going to follow that rabbit trail. Um, no, this is, this, is, this is the trump card. It's not scientific. People don't rise from the dead. That's not scientific. Sorry. Like, all of a sudden now, like, well, I guess. I, mean, I can't believe it anymore because science says it can't happen. Like, science is this all-knowing, all-great being that we must bow before. Right? But it's treated that way. Or, that, or either that or, you know, that, that doesn't make sense. That's irrational. Well, I guess I can't believe that now because it's irrational. Right? It's treated like these kind of claims, these kind of statements are these, these kill-all defeaters. Like, now you can't believe in Jesus at all because it's unscientific and it's irrational. Well, who decided it's unscientific and who decided it's irrational? Well, I did. Really? So I have to, anyway. Just so you know, if you, as you share the gospel with others, you are going to be struck with those kind of aggressive people. People will respond to the gospel that way. Many people, and increasingly so, many people are buying this lie that, that unscientific is a trump card. That's the definition of a miracle, people. Amen. A miracle is disobeying the laws of nature. If Jesus rises from, from the dead, it's a miracle. It's not scientific. Duh. <laughs> right? Illogical, though. That's you can, that's an easy, easily defeated. If Jesus rises from the dead, it's logical. Right? Is there proof? There is plenty of proof for Jesus' resurrection. I've said this before. I believe more firmly in the resurrection of Jesus than I do in my own existence. I believe more that Jesus rose from the dead than I believe that I am standing up on this pulpit today. There's more evidence for Jesus' for Jesus' resurrection than for my own existence. It's crazy. But it's illogical, guys. Right, what a ridiculous claim. We have historical evidence. We have, uh, we have uh, you know, all sorts of different kinds of evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Um, and so, 
So here we have this third group of people that are going to act aggressively. Be aware of that. Uh, and, 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 and along with that, don't fall prey to that either. If you come across somebody and they say, you know what, I don't know if I can believe that. There's this and this and this, and I just, I can't accept that. And you say, you know what, that challenged me. You know what you get to do after that? Ask somebody for help, right? This is what the church is for. Hey guys, I came across this argument. I have no idea what to do with it. I'm confused. I'm, I'm kind of stuck on this one. I need, to, I need some help. Okay, yeah, maybe somebody else has come across that argument before. Ask your pastor. Ask somebody else on your staff. Ask somebody in your Sunday school. Seek help. I guarantee you there's been a book written about it too. So if I don't know the answer, I could probably help you find a book that does know the answer. So uh, don't, don't feel like you can't share your faith with other people because they might be aggressive towards you or they might make you doubt your, your Christianity because there's answers out there. There are definitely answers. There's definitely uh, proof and there, there's helps out there. So I encourage you to not be d- uh, discouraged by that, but also be aware that that does happen. As we close today, what group are you in? Are you in the group that believes? Maybe you're in the group that's a little confused. Isn't sure what you believe about Jesus. Maybe third, you're in the group that's aggressive against Jesus. Pray that the Holy Spirit would work in your heart and you would respond as the Lord has called you to respond. Let's move to our time of invitation here.